Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Now it came to pass afterwards. After what? Well, you recall last week Jesus uh, was in the house of Simon, uh, the Pharisee, and uh, this woman who was a social outcast, renowned sinner in, in town, came uh, to worship the Lord, to anoint him with oil. And so there was that whole dynamic that, ta- that took place where uh, she anointed him and she had this, just this overflow of love and of gratitude for who she was in Christ. And, and, uh, and so just living out her faith and the expression of her love towards God. And so it was after that, now that Jesus went out in every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And uh, the 12 were with him, speaking of the 12 apostles, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called uh, Magdalene, uh, out of whom ha- uh, had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife uh, of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him, providing for Jesus, uh, from their substance. Um, And so Jesus here, he's preaching uh, the gospel. And really the big idea of our message today is the potential power that God's word has to transform us. That there is potential power. Now God's word is powerful. And it does transform. But the potential part has to do with you. The dictionary defines potential this way. It says, having the possibility to become something in the future. Um, and the, the word potential, it implies that there is a variable to the equation. Um, and so the possibility is there to become something in the future, but in order for potential to become reality, you have to respond. And so today we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at four potential responses to God's Word, uh, which alone has the power to transform, and we're going to see a picture of what the best response to God's word looks like. So we start with the second part. We start with what the best response to God's word looks like. And so what we see here is that this, on the heels of this woman who responded so greatly to to the Lord's word, coming to worship the Lord. And we know that worship is so much more than standing and singing, isn't it? Worship is how we live our lives in response to God. Everything that you do can be an act of, of worship, and in fact, is an act of worship. You worship something, you either worship God Almighty, or you worship yourself, or you worship your checkbook, or you worship lust, or whatever it is. And so, everything that we do is an expression of worship. And so, what we have here, beginning with this picture of the best response of God's word, we've got these people who are responding to the Lord really in practical worship. Started last week with this gal who anointed the Lord with oil, and now it continues. We see these, the, the 12 apostles um, just worshiping God by supporting him in his work. You have uh, him also being supported by these certain women that are mentioned. Uh, Mary Magdalene, she got the name Magdalene, by the way, because she was from the town of Magdala, which is uh, on the, the Sea of Galilee there. And uh, she, the text tells us, having been delivered from, from demonic possession, seven demons having possessed her and she being set free, now living her life in worship of the Lord. Uh, Joanna is mentioned, the wife of, of uh, Cusa, um, King Herod's steward, uh, and so what that would mean is that 
this, her husband was the guy that managed all of King Herod's financial affairs and so on. Uh, really high prominent position, so that would make Joanna just a woman of high society. Uh, and she worshiping the Lord, providing for his needs as well. And then this gal, Susanna, is mentioned. Now, we don't know anything about Susanna. We don't read about her after this. But what we know is enough that she served the Lord in worship by, by supporting uh, his very needs, just giving of her substance to support the work uh, of the Lord. As well, Jesus here is supported, the text tells us, by the work of many others. And the one thing that they all have in common is the participation in a fruitful harvest. The participation of a fruitful harvest. Again, just, just this living out a life of worship to God. What, is, what is, we are seeing here is a picture of what responding to God ought to look like. See, following God... It's not just a profession and a prayer and then nothing changes in your life. Following God has to, it, it has to, to result in just that, following God, putting feet on your faith. In Ephesians, we read this. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, it says, In Him, in Christ, we also have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And it goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are his workmanship, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, it's not just about praying the prayer and getting saved and then everything's done and now I look forward to heaven. You know, our, our life in, in God, if it were about that, the moment that you, you said the sinner's prayer, Jesus would be like, everybody out of the pool, let's go, come on up here, you'd be in heaven, you know? It's not about that. You have to live out a life of an ongoing sanctification process where God's making you more and more like Jesus Christ, and in the process, you are being the hands and feet of Christ here on, on the earth, and this is what we see in these people. Here in chapter 8, verse 3 tells us that they provided for Jesus from their substance. Two key words there, by the way, if you're given to taking notes in your Bible, you could circle that word substance. Nearby, you could write this. You could write that which is needed to exist. And what this is speaking of is logistical needs. This is talking about food. This is talking about water. This is talking about just practical support. And the fact is they provided this, you could circle that word, nearby you could write this, you could write one who serves. We get the word deacon from that word provided. And so you put that all together, what is this saying? It's saying that they served God by providing for the needs of Jesus. And really not just for the needs of Jesus. If you've got the King James Version or the New King James Version, then it reads there in verse 3 that they provided for him from their substance, and the hymn is capitalized, and that would speak of Jesus. But actually, a better translation doesn't use the word him. It uses the word them, plural, and Jesus is included in the them, but really it's all of the workers who are working to, to bring the gospel. And the idea here, they're providing these people that are mentioned, the 12 apostles, all of these women, they're providing for all of these logistical needs. Now, if you have a, a military background, you understand logistics and the need for logistical support. It's absolutely critically essential. In fact, it's one of the keys 
to sustained success in any military campaign. So you can have capable forces, and, and those are the ones that are exciting, you know, looking at, at you know, the, the Navy SEAL and all of his armament and all of his miraculous training, or looking at, you know, the fighter pilot and just the, the multi-million dollar work of art that he, that he flies and all of that, or she flies. And so, yeah, there, there are the capable forces that are a part of having successfully, you know, a successful military campaign. But they will not have an ongoing, sustained success if it's not for logistical support. As a matter of fact, if you're a student of history, you know that Germany ended up really suffering defeat when they invaded the Soviet Union. And you can trace it back to the lack of logistical support. They actually were a superior fighting force. And they could have brought more significant military equipment to bear and certainly better soldiers to bear. But they lacked for logistical support, and so they ended up being routed. And so this is critically important. This is, this is what we need to understand, what these people did, having responded to Christ. Now they're living out their faith, supporting Jesus in the work that, that he's doing, providing this logistical support. Now I want to make this clear and be very careful what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. <laughs> um, Jesus can never be defeated. Right? We talk about how the, you know, the Germans weren't successful because they didn't have logistical support and how Jesus had this logistical support and it helped him to be successful. That's not to imply that if these folks hadn't shown up that Jesus wouldn't be successful. I mean, God is God. God will do what God's going to do. And so it's not the fact that God needs us necessarily but from the beginning, we have to understand that God has connected the advance of the gospel to laborers in the harvest. You have to see that here. Starts with Jesus. When he walked this earth, he was assisted by laborers in the harvest to help make him successful in the work that he's doing. That's just the way that God set it up. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 9 speaks of Jesus' similar endeavors. It's not talking about this particular time where Jesus was going out. But here's what it says. It says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And then, listen, this is key. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest, here it is, to send out laborers into his harvest. Why? Because God has connected the advance of the gospel to our laboring together, co-laboring in the harvest. This is just how God has set it up. And just as Jesus was supported in his work 2,000 years ago, so too today we are called to support Jesus in his work. I'll give you our most recent example. We talked about it this morning. We have VBS coming up in two weeks. By God's grace, we've got 1,000 kids that are coming to VBS and, and so what happens is, listen, in order for us to be successful in that, it all depends on you, 
on you being faithful to serve Jesus with your substance. That's how it works out. We got a thousand kids coming. We got hundreds of servants coming. We have thousands of dollars of materials that we need to provide for VBS. We have thousands of dollars more to rent the facility and to do all of this stuff. And listen, how do we do this every year? And by the way, why do we do this? Because by God's grace, not only do we get a thousand kids come, but we see hundreds of kids make professions of faith in Jesus Christ. Tammy Pena, our children's ministry director, bearing so much fruit for the Lord today. But man, her testimony, she came out of a train wreck family with a train wreck story and, and really, by all rights, should not have become the, the, the sane, passionate, loving person of God that she is by what she received in this world, humanly speaking. But she got saved at a VBS and God radically transformed her life. And by God's grace, we see hundreds of kids every year making this profession of faith. This is why we do what we do. And so with the hundreds of servants and the thousands of dollars, hey, where does that all come from? It comes from people giving of their substance. This is what we read here. This is how Jesus' ministry was perpetuated here. It works the same today. We don't, we don't have and never have had any, I mean, it's not like we're connected to some larger organization, you know, as far as financially speaking. We are independent. It's not like we have some, you know, major millionaire who underwrites our ministry. Everything we do is from the substance that you and me provide, just as the bag comes around. This is, this is us doing what we see these wonderful saints doing here, this beautiful picture of, look, we're, we're not consumers as Christians. We're called to be contributors. And this is what we see, this beautiful work of Jesus, because of people giving faithfully of their substance. And so this is what we experience here, that we can join Jesus on this venture of faith, watch the gospel go out, watch people's lives radically transformed as you and I simply provide for Jesus by our substance that he has given to us. And I want you to notice also the significant role that women play in this work. Their participatory role. Listen, this was highly unusual in this day in particular. Women were treated as second-class citizens. They were treated like possessions. They generally had no rights whatsoever. Rabbis refused to teach women, uh, and they generally assigned them to inferior roles, to underling positions. And these women playing a very prominent role. We need to understand that Jesus had a different attitude towards women than the leaders of his day. That Jesus was wonderfully inclusive and supportive of the work that women can and do provide. I tell guys all the time in marriage counseling, look, your wife, she may be called to submit to you, but she is not a potted plant in your relationship. She ain't there for decoration. God's given you somebody who's a smart cookie, like you do well to listen to her. She's a participatory part of the marriage relationship. And in the kingdom of God, you and I all together, we have participatory roles in the kingdom of God. Pastor Rod shared this last week. We were in worship and prayer together and, and all, and he, and he was just sharing in light of 
as we have gathered together in cross-culture and reliance, merging together into one church. And he shared from Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29. And it reads this. It says, For you are... You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you were baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there is the, therefore neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. And I might add, there is neither cross-culture or reliance. There, he says, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so with that in mind here, what we're seeing, verses 1 through 3, we see a picture of the best response to what God's Word looks like. That we see the outworking of faith in all these volunteers. We see Jew and Gentile serving Jesus. We see male and female serving Jesus. We see Joanna, this high socialite, uh, serving Jesus right alongside Mary Magdalene, who comes from a sordid background. Everybody expressing their worship to God just in this active participation of the harvest. So beautiful. I love this quote. I wrote it down. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says, we can't do what Jesus does, but we can do what we do to help Jesus do what he does. I love that. Only Jesus can do what Jesus does, but he's, he's created you. He's made you. We read it in Ephesians 1. Read it in Ephesians 2. That he's created you, you're his work of art, you're, you're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. And so, so this, this, this beautiful picture of what this best response to God's word looks like and the lives of those who have responded to him and joined him in this venture of faith. And now we move on and the focus turns uh, from that to the four potential responses to God's word. And so we see these believers, people who've responded to God and how he radically changes them and what that should look like. But now, as Jesus goes out and as his word goes out, now, as the story continues, now there's others that the broadcast is going out to, that the invitation is going out to. And so what we're looking at is these four potential responses to God's word. Verse 4, it says, And when a great multitude had gathered and they had come to him from every city, he spoke... By a parable. Now, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, <clears throat> but it's not exactly an illustration. You know, sometimes you know, when we teach the word, a teacher will they'll present the truth and then they'll illustrate the truth. I do this often. Um, for, you know, you, you illustrate it with a story or with an analogy, something that you know. Hey, here's the, what the Bible says. Here's the truth. And now I'll illustrate it for you. I'll give you an example. And I was teaching through Ephesians 5. It, it talks in, in section there about the evil deeds that are exposed by the light of the word of God. And so as Paul is talking, he then says this in Ephesians 5.14. He says, for the light makes everything visible. He says, this is why it said, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So I'm teaching through that, and, I, and so that's the truth. So now then I illustrate the truth. And the way I illustrated that was, you know, hey, you work construction, and you come home, and at the end of the day, pretty much here's how it works. You're kind of on autopilot at the end of the day. 
You're just sort of sleepwalking through life. I mean, I got home. I didn't remember the last two miles, but here I am at home, and I'm just glad to be home, and I'm just looking to sit down and relax. I'm looking forward to dinner. Maybe I'll raid the fridge, snack a little bit while I'm waiting for dinner to be done. And so, so you walk through the front door, muddy boots and all, and you're three or four steps into the, into the house, and all of a sudden your wife calls out from the other room and says, Hey, I just mopped that floor. Now, what happened? Your wife just gave you light, right? You were walking in the darkness. You were sleepwalking kind of your way through your, your, your trip home. But now your wife just gave you light, and now you have a choice. You can continue walking in the darkness and reject that, or you can receive the light that your wife just gave you and sleep in your own bed that night instead of out on the couch, and you can now walk in the light right? So that's an example of an illustration, but a parable is different than that. See, when Jesus uses parables, he doesn't start with the truth. No, what Jesus does, the parable is like a doorway. And so Jesus's listeners are standing, (coughs) they're standing at that doorway. And then what happens is if, if they're interested, then they can go through the doorway to learn more. But if they're not interested, they can just stay on the outside, right? So if I go through the doorway, I go, oh, I'm interested. What am I doing? Well, now I want to think more deeply about what's the truth behind the parable and what does it mean to my life? And so Jesus is teaching here by parable. Uh, Verse 5, he says, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down. And the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rocks. And as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among the thorns. And thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? So what have these disciples done? They've decided to go through the door. They're intrigued. They say, Hey, we want to learn. We want to know more. So tell us, what does the parable mean? And... He said to them, verse 10, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Why? Well, because they're pressing in. They want to know. Explain this to us. But to the rest, it is given in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. In other words, hey, they decided, they've heard the truth, but they don't care to go through the door and press in and to get to really ponder what does this actually mean. So it's kind of open to interpretation for them kind of deal. And so now Jesus goes on to explain it. Verse 11, he says, the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. And by the way, you you have to know what the key to the parable is to get the parable. And so Jesus is saying, here's the key. You got to get it, the seed. It's all about the seed. The seed is the word of God. That's the subject matter we're talking about. And he says, and those by the wayside are the ones who hear... And then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no roots, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. 
And now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, they go out and they're choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Now, be very clear. The key is that the seed is the word. And notice the word goes to everyone. The word goes out to everyone. The, the, the sower, in this instance, the sower is Jesus. He's the one who's preaching the gospel. But this applies to you and me and our obligation to preach the gospel. And the word goes to everybody. And so, so, so the, the, the seed is there. It's been broadcast. Everybody receives the seed. But everybody has a different soil condition. The soil speaks of the human heart. And everybody, every human heart has a different response to this seed. Now, the seeds are remarkable things. If you study them, it's absolutely remarkable to, to understand. I mean, they found seeds that are, that are sealed like in, the, in the, the pyramids in Egypt. They've taken seeds thousands of years old and they've actually harvested them planted them, harvested the crops from this. All the information encoded in the seed. The seed has everything programmed within it. And so the information that causes it to sprout when it comes in contact with the soil, the information that causes it to be rooted and grounded, the information that causes the resulting growth to to go upward and to seek sunlight, which, which we could go off on a tangent and just... Look at how God is revealed in his creation just through that. Just programmed to seek the light. And so, so the seed does all that. And the, the seed within it, it contains everything that's needed for growth except for one thing. And that is a receptive soil. Receptive soil. The seed, everything in it, programmed, ready to go. But it has to have soil that will receive that seed. Jesus says here that the seed is the soil of our heart, or the the soil is the soil of our hearts, and that there's really four types of soil, four potential responses to God's Word. Now, the first is is the, the response of a hardened heart, really, right? Jesus describes it as the seed that fell by the wayside. Now, the wayside was the footpath that surrounded the, the fields where the farmers would work. This is where everybody would walk, and the ground would get trampled down. It was very hard ground. Many of you know my son was an actor in Hollywood for 14 years. And by God's grace, he had a lot of success, and we, you know, involved in, in a lot of, you know, films and, and television shows and so on. And we had to, to create a production company for him, um, and uh, it's a complicated thing, but basically we're advised by the lawyers and all just to create this production company, and we named the production company Hard Ground Productions, because for us, Hollywood was a mission field, and we were there to let our light so shine before men that they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven, but make no mistake, it was very hard ground, and, and so it was Hard Ground Productions, and just the very name of it caused some great missions opportunities, talking to accountants and lawyers and all. Hard ground productions, what does that mean? Well, it's funny you should ask, you know. And, uh, and so hard ground, man. And so the, the idea here is that people along the wayside, man, their hearts are so hardened that the word doesn't easily penetrate and it doesn't have time to germinate. 
I think about G. Gordon Liddy every time I think of a hardened heart. You know, somebody was trying to share faith with him, trying to share the gospel with G. Gordon Liddy. He was one of Richard Nixon's uh, sidekicks, you know, a helper there. He, he actually was one of the masterminds of the Watergate break-in, did time in prison and so on. And as they're trying to share the gospel with G. Gordon Liddy, his response was, you know what, I'm a man of great faith, but my great faith is in G. Gordon Liddy. He says, I've never failed me. And I always say, really, even that time in prison, you never failed you, you know. But just a hardened heart would not receive from the Lord at all. And again, our job as sowers of the Word of God isn't to go, oh, that guy's got a hard heart, I'm not going to throw the seed there. No, notice that this guy throws the seed everywhere. Our job is just to pray. Only God can break up the hardened ground of somebody's heart, and we pray that he would. And we just scatter the seed, and we see what God will do. Well, the second heart condition that Jesus talks about here, he talks about the the seed that fell on the rock. And specifically, the picture here is that you've got rock, and it's covered over you know, by dirt, but the rock's just below the ground. So what happens is that as the seed hits that dirt, well, then what happens is the, the, there's just enough room for the seed to germinate and, and to begin to, to grow, but what happens is there's no depth to it, and, and so it, it just, there's no way for the roots to go down. There's just this kind of this surface-level faith, and it just dies off as quickly as it came. We see this kind of heart a lot at a crusade where the invitation is given and somebody's there and they like, you know, the perks of the gospel. Hey, the fire insurance. Oh, I don't go, have to go to hell. And, and there's, you know, I can, I can get a do-over and, and I, I like the idea of being forgiven and all of this stuff. But really there's no depth there and there's no desire for depth there. And so what happens is they respond to the message but they never really make an effort to go deeper. And again... That doesn't keep us from throwing the seed out. That doesn't keep us from giving the invitation. But we pray. We pray that people would be willing to then start breaking up and allow God to break up that hardened heart. And Lord, help the roots to go deep and I want to press in and, and know you more. Well, the third type of soil condition that Jesus talks about here is the seed that fell among thorns. I don't know, you know how often you've had a chance to read this and ponder this, but I've often thought about the seed that falls among the thorns. Because Jesus, when he describes it, he says, you know, the, it sprang up, but the seeds choked it. And as, as he's describing this, he says, this is those people who they, they go out when they, they've heard They go out and they're choked with cares and with riches and with pleasures of life and they bring no fruit to maturity. And how many of you have wondered, wow, does the, I got to take a hard look at that. That kind of describes maybe what I've experienced, maybe what you've experienced, where the cares of this world start to choke out the seed of God's word and make it unfruitful in my life. Haven't you experienced that? You know, I mean, this is, a lot of times you see that with people who live or are content to live at compartmental lives, compartmentalized lives. And so they go, oh, I got my Jesus compartment over here, but this is my party compartment over here. You know, and, and so, you know, I'm going to go do shots at happy hour with my buddies, and I call myself a Christian. 
Or, or the person who, you know, I've seen every episode of the Game of Thrones and I can quote it for you verbatim, but I'm not so familiar with the storyline of the scriptures. I'm more familiar with the storyline of Game of Thrones than I am with the scriptures. Or the person who, you know, spends all their time and money on their pleasures and on their hobbies. And they will, they will make no end of the sacrifice that are required for, you know, my kids' soccer games and their cheer and their football and we're going to the desert riding and we're going to go to Havasu and take the boat out. And this church just doesn't fit in my schedule this week. Bummer. And so they'll make all these sacrifices for all these other things. Why? Because they're compartmentalized, but it's like, eh, you know, if I have to sacrifice for the kingdom, well, then I'm, it's not convenient for me to go to church today. Now, I was thinking through this, and I'm putting it down this week. I'm like, this is going to make some people mad when I start touching on some of these things. You know, you throw a rock at a pack of dogs, and one that yelps is the one that got hit, they say. And, and a lot of times, you start messing with people's idols, and, uh, and you become unpopular in a hurry. And, and here's what I would say. If you, if, if you find yourself just going, oh, dude, Game of Thrones, really? You're going to get legalistic like that? Here, let me just challenge you this way. I challenge you to do two things. Do them today. If not today, do them this week. Look at your calendar and look at your checkbook. Just look at those two things. See, when I was a paramedic, they taught us that when we were going out to care for people that we had to check vital signs. What's their pulse? What's their respiration? What's their blood pressure? What's their skin color? What's their skin temperature? You know, these are vital signs, and you eyeball these things to get a feeling for what's the, what's the condition of the patient. So if I take your blood pressure, and it's, you know, 60 systolic, you know, that's the top number, and the bottom number I can't even hear, you know, you're not 120 over 80, you're like 60 over nothing. But I take your pulse then, and it's 120, and you're pale, cool, and diaphoretic, I go, oh, this guy's bleeding out. He's, he, 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 there's something serious going on. He's got something going on. He's losing blood somewhere because his heart's trying to pump up and just keep up with this loss of volume somehow, you know, or he's in septic shock or something like that, you know, and so it tells me something's wrong. And the idea here is that if you look at your calendar, if you look at your checkbook, those, those are vital signs. Where am I spending my time? Where am I spending my money? Because talk is cheap. I can say God's first all day long. But if there's, if there's thorns that are choking out the Word of God in your life, it'll show up in your calendar. It'll show up in your checkbook. And you go, okay, so where am I spending my time? Where am I spending my money? And is those things bringing, or those investments, are they bringing me closer to God? Or are they bringing me further away from God? And, and what kind of fruit is being produced by what my time and my money is going towards? Well, the fourth type of soil that Jesus talks about, and we close on this one, is good ground. And that's what you want, man. You want God's word to find good, good soil in your heart. And he says this is a heart that receives the word. He says it's a heart that keeps the word. And he says it's a heart that bears fruit with patience. And patience is a very key word here. It, it, it means literally, if you want, if, again, if you're taking the notes, in verse 15, you might want to circle that word patience. Nearby, you could write this. You could write to remain under, because that's, that's literally what that means. To remain under. 
To remain under what? What does that mean? It means to remain under God's hand. It means to, 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 to dwell and to rest in the Lord. See, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. But the Bible says, it tells us in Romans chapter 12, that in order for God to continue that work, it requires your patient cooperation. Here's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here's the deal. We live in an instant society that wants everything right now. Right, And what we don't want to do is I don't want to wait for the seed to grow and produce fruit in my life. I don't have the patience. I want the fruit right now. And Satan, knowing that, says, cool, I'll give you, I'll give you what you want right now. And so he offers us, hey, you can have it all, you can have it your way, and you can have it right now. It's counterfeit, but he says, this is what I'll give you. And so we have a choice. I can either wait upon the Lord and I can, you know, let his word come into my heart and I can wait for the fruit that his word promises to produce, which will satisfy my, my hunger, or I can take the counterfeit that the enemy offers. And so, so, so what is it when, when Paul says very clearly, present your bodies, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind? How does that happen? The renewing of your mind happens from the Word of God. Happens from the Word of God. Now, I, I, I put this out, and I, and I was going to put it on the screen for you, and I don't have time to put it up there, so I'm going to paraphrase, but I would encourage you to write down Isaiah 55, 6 through 13, because here's what Isaiah basically says. He says we need to call upon the Lord, and, and he explains that God's ways aren't our ways, and he explains how, you know, God's Word comes out and, and he promises that he's going to give seed to the sower, bread to the eater, and he says, my word is like that. It, and he says, it's going to accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. And then he goes on and he describes about uh, how God's word goes out and how it's watered and the fruit that it produces. And essentially what he says is this. He says, God's word hits your heart and it hits my heart. And what happens is it promotes growth. Now, your heart and my heart, Isaiah says, are the equivalent of thorn bushes and briars. But what happens is that when God's word hits our heart, we produce fruit, but we don't produce thorns and briars like we would naturally produce if it weren't for God's word. What Isaiah says is that God's word fundamentally changes the fruit that we would otherwise produce. And now what we produce is those lush trees that produce fruits. The psalmist put it this way. He said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. He says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, God's word. 
And in his law, he meditates day and night. Here's what he promises. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit and its in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does, the psalmist promises, will prosper. Now, in closing, I want to just draw your attention to one thing. The closing of this parable that Jesus gives, draw your attention back to verse 8. Because what he says is that the seed that falls on good ground sprang up. And he says, it yielded a crop a hundredfold. And he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I've been, I've been tripping out on that this week. That the, the seed of God's word can produce a harvest a hundredfold in your life and in my life. I heard this quote in relation to that. It says, any fool can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in one seed. Do you get the difference? Yeah, you might have eight, nine, ten, whatever it is, seeds that you dig out of an apple. But you let one of those seeds die, and you put it in the ground. And over the course of the lifetime of the tree that's produced, how many thousands and upon thousands of apples are going to come from that one seed that just was buried, just died, buried in the ground and rose again. Listen, that's what the Lord wants for you and me. He wants us to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross daily and to follow him. And Christian, let me tell you, the fruit that God will produce in and through you blow your mind as we are those people who just say, Lord, I want to provide for you from my substance. And I want the gospel to go forth. Let's be those kind of people, amen?